Desideratum is a Latin word. It means things that are desired as essential. This podcast celebrates storytelling as essential. I'm audiobook narrator Teresa Bakken, showcasing the talents of my author and narrator friends. I hope you'll hear an artist you love or find your next favorite wordsmith. She describes herself to me in in the nursing home, she described herself as um, having a man-stopping body and a personality to go with it. (laughs) That is Michelle Cox, the author of the Henrietta and Inspector Howard series, talking about how her spunky, sleuthing, sexy character, Henrietta, is based on a real woman. We're talking about book five in her series. The book is called A Child Lost, where multiple storylines of crime and passion weave together. It's easy to pick up the threads, even if you're new to Henrietta's adventures. And while there aren't any cliffhanging loose ends, you will find clues to draw you to book six, which is coming out this fall. We begin our chat with Michelle, talking about 1930s women. One of the things that struck me is how women in the 30s are kind of trapped by their circumstances. Also that sometimes women are treated as very frail and even the dashing and uh, very attractive in many ways. Uh, Husband in this story, Clive, the inspector Howard can sometimes be condescending. You've written him appropriate for the period, appropriate for the time. Thanks. Sometimes he even speaks of Henrietta as, you know, like "Mm, a little dithering, (laughs) but, but then also appropriate for the time. I think you just allow these women strength in the circumstances that they're confined in. Yeah. Um, That you write them with a lot of courage you know you write some some women survivors right even villainous women in this story (laughs) yes so why is that important to you why why craft it that authentically and yet threading through this idea that women are stronger than they seem well I think because that's reality isn't it really yeah you know women all through history have have had to be strong, especially in, you know, the past century, you know, they really went through a lot. And a lot of my inspiration besides figures in my own family would be all of the people that I met in a nursing home when I worked there just out of college. And I often tell writers groups, you know, if you're searching for something to write about, go sit in a nursing home for about two weeks and you will have more stories than you could ever, ever, ever use. So these are real people who really live through extraordinary times. And that's what I like about the, my blog is that, which I write about these stories every week, is that. Okay, sorry. A quick interruption here. Michelle just said she writes about these stories every week in her blog. And this deserves a pause in the conversation. Michelle's blog is called Novel Notes of Local Lore. She has these snapshots and memories. It's kind of hard to explain. 
I think it's like hearing stories from a long-lost relative. They're real. Real people. Sharing a funny, or mundane, or profound, or painful memory through Michelle. I can get lost there. I'll link it in the show notes. Okay, back to our conversation. You know, a lot of these stories, you know, they're not famous people or they're not, you know, didn't do something heroic necessarily, like, Mm -hmm. you know, save the Titanic, but they, they were heroes of their own story. And so I just think that, you know, I, I really wanted to bring that out in my characters, especially my female characters. I love that heroes in their own stories. That's kind of another way of saying everybody has a story. Exactly. Everybody's the main character in a story, right? Their story. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I like that. And I mean, Henrietta in particular sort of fits very well into this sort of stereotype of a 1930s woman. And yet she does, she is very independent and has this sort of spunkiness to her. And people have asked me, is that realistic? And it's great because I get to say in, in the case of Henrietta, very much so because she's actually based on a real woman who really lived through the depression. And even though, you know, there's lines around the block for jobs, she wasn't afraid to slap an owner or a manager if they tried to take advantage of her. So I think that took incredible courage. And so right there, that's, you know, proof is in the pudding. (laughs) Yes. So let's talk about her a little bit. Sure. I think this idea that there's a real person sort of at the core of this fictional character, maybe that's why it feels like there are so many layers to me when I read it. Mm. One of the things that I was going to ask you just mentioned jobs. What is a 26 girl? Was that one of the jobs that she actually had? Is that where that came from? Yeah, so she, that's one of the things that intrigued me about choosing her story to base my fictional character on is that she had, she describes herself to me in in the nursing home, she described herself as um, having a man stopping body and a personality to go with it. (laughs) And I thought, wow, you know, who says that? So that right there, that's somebody incredible. So apparently she really did have this long string of jobs and she could remember many, many of them. And she, one of them was a 26 girl. And so that kind of comes out more in book one. So a lot of what happens in book one of the series, a girl like you really did happen. So a lot of those things are based on things that happened in her life, not the murder and all of that, but, you know, (laughs) trying out to be a burlesque usherette that's true, that she was a taxi dancer. She was a 26 girl. So all of these things were new to me too. And so I had to sort of do a little bit of research into what these jobs would have really entailed. Yes. So what is a 26 girl? 26 was apparently a dice game that was um, unique to Chicago. And you, it was usually in like corner taverns and you would roll a set of dice 13 times And if you got a perfect score of 26, you won a free drink on the house. And so they had these girls that were called 26 girls who were supposedly keeping score, but really their real job was to push drinks. 
Yeah. Well, so you just said it being indicative of Chicago. It's amazing to me how you've created that sense of place that, that we are in the Chicago area. Um, one of the really wonderful things listeners should know that if they keep reading all the way through the book, that at the very end, you have this really clever, like it's not acknowledgements, it's not an author's note, it's just like a little extra something for readers where, you know, you can't put every single detail of your research into a fiction. Mm -hmm. But you had some things left over that were really, that were really fun. And I don't want to give any of those necessarily away, but I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how, how there is like this this fine line in that in crafting fiction that's engaging and yet you're really you're historically rooting it you know you're you're playing off of the things that are really interesting the truths that are interesting in your area yeah that's a great question um so a lot of the action in um book five a child lost takes place as you know in dunning asylum which is a real place. And I had known about Dunning actually because one of my kids did a project on it in high school. (laughs) And so that's the way that I came to know about it. And so I, I think for me, the key to sort of balancing this research, this treasure trove of research that you do and the story is I go about it really differently than a lot of authors. So I don't know if any, any writers out there should follow this, but (laughs) I feel like I would way rather write than research Mm. because I I'm so into the story that it's just about the story to me. I try not to do any research before I start writing besides what's already in my head, which, you know, I do because I'm so fascinated by the past, there is kind of already a lot there, but right. I have found if I do too much research ahead of time, then it's too much of a struggle to put all of that into the story. And that's a common, you know, problem with authors is, you know, there's too much info dump. So I did almost fall into that with this particular book. And so I decided I'm not, I can't, I can't, do that again. So while I'm writing, I can sense that, okay, here I need a little bit of description of what this place is like. I am going to do that later and I will just keep going with the story. And then later I will go in and fill in all of these details because now I'm not in the story. And now it's easier for me to find just the things I need instead of this long, you know, weeks of research. And then I have to agonize over what to put in and what to cut. That is really fascinating, actually. And, and I, honestly, having just finished the book, that makes a lot of sense the way you're describing it, because I think I'm with your characters and listeners should know there is a lot of the story takes place in and around this asylum, or at least the most intense parts of it to me as a reader And there's, trying to think of how to explain it without giving anything away, but you're in the asylum with your main character sort of doing some sleuthing and it's a, it's page turning. It's intense. And I think you're right. It's not bogged down in any way. You've saved those little historical things as just jewelry on it, that it's not the, it's not the heart of it. That's really fascinating that you consciously are 
moving through it that way as an author. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's a great way to put it jewelry, but cause that's kind of how I feel like when I finish the first or even second draft, that's when I can really start adding all of these sort of design pieces or, you know, decoration onto it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You have some references to poetry in this book. Yeah. Not just an aside, but you've put a few stanzas from some really lovely poetry, one being from Robert Louis Stevenson. You even reference his book, The Children's Garden of Verse, which has a really hauntingly beautiful poem. To me, it was also a little bit about the title. So um, I guess, where's the question? Um, so A Child Lost is the title. And it, for me, that theme of there's death, there's children lost through, through death. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a child who's orphaned. Her mother has died. Um, but also in the reference in this poetry, you get this glimpse of how children are lost by growing up, right? Yeah. That there's sort of the ghost of a child after they're gone to a parent. I thought that was really, I really liked that. Oh, thank you. Did you know that as you started this, as you titled this book and thought about this story, was the poetry you used an inspiration point or, or why did you end up in those particular poems? Well, I feel like you should get a gold medal (laughs) (laughs) because you're the first one to have referenced that. So you got it. Yay. Yay. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I used to read that book to my kids when they were babies and I was feeding them. That would be the, I would read those poems aloud to them. So they're very, very special to me. And um, yes, A Child Lost is supposed, the title is supposed to refer to, there are many lost children in this book. Even Rose's um, mentally challenged brother is referred to as a lost child. So there are many lost children. And I think that this is strange. I mean, this is, I don't know if if all writers work this way, but I'm sure they do. But you have this basic idea of where you're going with the story. And then it it really is true inspiration. Things just come to you Mm. that you can't explain. So I think it goes back to... um, I wanted Elsie, there's a scene where she gives this book to Anna, the little girl, who the orphan girl. And I was thinking, what book would she have given her? You know, and then I thought, I know she would have given her this Robert Louis Stevenson book. That's perfect. And then it didn't occur to me until the end that I hadn't said anything about the woman left behind in the asylum and the lost book. And I thought, oh, how beautiful to sort of bring those two things together. And I was reading through the book that I have and I thought, which poem would she have read? And then I came across this one. I'm like, this is perfect. Isn't that interesting how things are all, like all those elements were in your head, Mm -hmm. but you still, it still is sort of a, a process of discovery. Yes. To get them into the story. Yes. And it happens, it happens all the time. And it's amazing. And to me, that is truly the secret part about all of this, this author writing and business, because it is a business. um, That is the thing that is 
the most rewarding is um, when your brain sort of sometimes connects with something beyond you mm. and something comes through that you couldn't possibly have imagined yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I felt I got a little chill, you know, reading that. I just felt, I thought it was so, um, it did feel all connected to me. And I always love that in a story to feel like I've picked up a thread that I dropped at the very beginning, you know, and I go, oh, oh, that's awesome. This is a good spot to pause and let you listen to a few minutes of the audiobook. Michelle's narrator for the entire Henrietta and Inspector Howard series is the Jane Entwistle, an Audi finalist, a Voice Arts Award winner, who's known for her narration work on book series. You may have heard her on the Flavia de Luce series. And you might have also seen her acting work on television series like The Good Place. In this reading, you will hear Jane in Henrietta's sister Elsie's voice, describing the moment Elsie meets the orphan child, Anna. This is from A Child Lost by Michelle Cox. Narrated by Jane Entwistle. For a long time, Elsie assumed that Anna was a woman, Perhaps someone Gunther was romantically attached to from his native Germany. But then Elsie had begun to feel certain stirrings for Gunther herself, perhaps unconsciously. And when he tenderly kissed her hand in the hidden greenhouse in the Mundelein skyscraper, she had fled in terror, not for her personal safety, but for fear of what she might in fact be feeling for him. After a day and a night of avoiding him, however, she had eventually come to the conclusion that she needed to face her fears and confront him, the result being her discovery that the mysterious Anna in his journal was merely a child, which had raised a whole new set of questions and fears, especially when the child had called him Papa. Upon discovering the two of them in the hut that day, Elsie almost fled in her mortification and her sorrow, and probably would have, had it not been for the look of panic on Gunther's face and the broken utterance of her name. Elsie. His whisper had given her sufficient pause, enough to see the silent pleas that followed, his lips forming the word, but no sound escaping. His plea and the desperate longing she saw in his eyes were palpable and hovered in the short space between them, paralyzing and holding her there against her will. Elsie, please come in, he said hoarsely, slowly gesturing toward the interior of the small cottage, as if he suspected she might bolt at any moment and therefore should not employ any sudden movements. She did not bolt, however, though every nerve in her body was taut and ready. She instead took a deep breath and sternly reminded herself that this was why she had come, to hear him out. Hadn't she stood at her bedroom window through most of the night, puzzling out what to do? Near dawn, she had finally come to the decision that she would go to him and listen without interrupting or judging, just as he had done for her, no matter how shocking his explanation turned out to be. And yet there in the frigid morning air, 
the sun having just crested the horizon. She had already been tempted to run. Seeing a little girl standing in front of him and addressing him as Papa was certainly beyond anything she had heretofore imagined. But as difficult as his explanation promised to be, she knew there was no turning back now. So with just a slight pause, she had stepped across his threshold and thus into his world. Once inside the small hut, Gunther indicated for her to sit in one of the chairs next to a little wooden table. Anna retreated to a rumpled trundle that sat pulled out from under the main bed, which was also unmade and looked as though it had been recently occupied. Elsie averted her eyes from what was obviously Gunther's bed, and instead looked at Anna, who sat cross-legged on her thin mattress, warily watching Elsie with her finger in her mouth, very much reminding Elsie of her little sister Doris. Silently, Gunther placed a steaming mug of coffee on the table before Elsie, and sat down across from her. Elsie stared at the mug for a moment, and then took hold of it, her cold fingers finding comfort in the warmth, before she forced herself to look up at him. So you have a little note at the end about the author, which I always, I always read every word, but it references the fact that you either collect or you like to play board games. Do you have a favorite board game? Oh my gosh, don't even ask. Um, <laughs> you know, I will play any game. I really will. I love games. I love card games. Um, I do collect them. Um, my basement has about, I don't know, probably 300 different board game and card games. Wow. Some of them are antique and some of them, you know, are little kid games. And so um, my favorite, favorite are the big strategy games. So like Settlers of Catan and all of the spinoffs of, of those. And um, I really love a game called Puerto Rico. And there's one called Hawaii, which actually the designer, the creator of this game, Hawaii, which is, you know, a nationally produced game, um, used to live right next door to me. Ah. So I played a lot of the, the prototypes with him. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. I think it's nice that you share that with your readers, that that's part of your personality, that you're a board game aficionado. Yes. Yes. Thanks. And I think really like that's also gets to that time frame. Like if that's, the, if that's a time frame, you're really the thirties and the forties and even the fifties, right? Like we have so many other ways to play today. Um, they were a real way for people to connect and entertain each other. Yes, for sure. And that's definitely my family history. I mean, that's what people did for fun is they played card games and, I really did try to bring a little bit of that in, especially when in book two, when Henrietta goes to Highbury Clive's mansion for the first time and she's walking around the rooms and she's looking around thinking to herself, you know, which rooms would be great to play Rummy in. <laughs> so there's that sort of reference. And then there's one of the books, Gunther actually comes back to Palmer Square with Elsie and ends up playing cards with, with Ma of all people. Yeah. I love that. I love the nod to that. The last thing I like to ask authors has to do with the title of the podcast. It's called Desideratum, which is Latin for things that are desired as essential. So I like to ask authors for you, if you had to tell somebody this or these things are essential to me, what would you say? 
Wow, that, <laughs> that's a tough question. Um, and I'll give you more background since we talked about poetry. This, the name of the podcast actually is derived from a poem called Desiderata. Okay. And it uh, begins, go placidly amid the noise and haste and remember what peace there may be in silence. Mm-hmm. And then it goes through each, each little phrase, each stanza of it are life lessons, really. Wow. But anyway, so it is a hard question. It's not a softball at the very end, but I'm always fascinated by the answers. I'm always amazed actually at how, how many different interpretations of the question and connections to the answers that, that people have. Okay. Well, I love that. So, okay. Because I could sort of give like a fake answer or I could give a real answer. And I think, you know, I, I just, I'm going to give a real answer. I think. Thank you. Because this has just been, I don't know. I feel like we've really connected over the story. And so I would have to say number one would be faith. Uh, number two would be love and number three would be forgiveness. Those are some very strong pillars in life. I think that's a great answer. I like that you included forgiveness. Why, why is that up there with faith and love? You think? Cause I think that it's kind of woven into love is that there's, it's hard to have one without the other. And they both, they both rely on faith. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. I want to thank Michelle Cox and Brooke Warner at She Writes Press for connecting with me. If you'd like to hear more, please look for the audiobook of A Child Lost on Libro FM. I found all five of the Henrietta and Inspector Howard books in Libro FM's library as well as more than 80 books narrated by Jane Entwistle. I'll put the Desideratum podcast affiliate link with Libro FM in the show notes and on the link tree on all our social media accounts. Using the affiliate link supports the podcast and a local bookstore of your choice. Book six in the Henrietta and Inspector Howard series will be out this fall. This has been episode 54. As always, thank you for listening.